passage, this confrontational passage, I pray that you would speak to us wherever we're at with you and you would help us to see how great Jesus is. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if as you were reading that passage, as Steve was reading that passage rather, and you were listening in, you were just going, I mean, this is a bit of a weird passage. I mean, have you seen anything like this? Can you even imagine it in your minds? I think in today's society, we've, we've got this aversion to the supernatural, especially when it comes to demons and Satan and all this kind of stuff. It's all like boogeyman territory. But I think deep down, we've got some, some kind of hunch that the world's evil can't be just explained by natural causes. I remember a number of years ago, I, uh, I was on a basketball team. We went out to the pub to celebrate our, our terrible season. We, I think, only won two games in about 18. But we went to the pub. We were having a chat. And I, I found out that basically everyone on the team, except for me, loved horror movies. And as we were talking about the horror movies they loved, there was a certain type of horror movies that they, they watched because it was fun. And I was like, okay, that's fun. But, there, but then there was another certain type of horror movies that they said it really scared them. And, and it was interesting, as I was hearing them talk about this certain type of horror movie that scared them, it was all around demon possession. And I said to them, I said, do you realize that all these horror movies that you think are fun uh, are this type, but, but, but you think these kind of demon possession movies are truly scary? I said, why do you think that is? And I have a habit of destroying conversation. It went quiet for a bit. And then one of them said, I guess deep down, we know that there are evil spiritual forces out there. And they all agreed. See, we may watch a horror movie and go, well, that's just Hollywood or something like that. But so many of us today, especially if we're from non-Western backgrounds, we, we have this sense that there's evil spiritual forces out there. But maybe you're here and, and, and you're saying, well, Hans, oh, man, I'm, that's just not me. No, I, I don't believe in this boogeyman, evil spiritual forces out there. Can I ask you this question once again? How do you explain all the evil in the world? How do you explain that? Think of the last hundred years. How do you explain the Holocaust? Where six million Jews and, and different types of people were killed. There's a lot being written on the Holocaust. One of the most famous books um, that, that, were, that was written and the aftermath of the Holocaust uh, was a book um, by a Jewish lady by Hannah Arendt. It was called The Banality of Evil, and it, and it covered the, the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was the man who kind of came up with, with a whole system that allowed all those people to be killed. And, and it was very controversial. She was originally writing for the New York Times, and as she wrote these pieces, everyone was, was really angry because she portrayed Adolf Eichmann as just a normal person. Banal, just kind of boring. 
Uh, and, and her whole title of the book actually implies that uh, that evil is boring. And in the book, she can't explain how this evil comes to be. In fact, there's a part, there's a scene in the book where she talks about the, um, the Jewish psychiatrist who, who interviews Adolf Eichmann and is asked, is this guy normal? And he said, yes, he's, he's so normal. In fact, he is far normal than I am after meeting him. See, the psychiatrist had this idea that he was going to be this evil monster and yet he was so normal. And it so profoundly affected him that he goes, I'm no longer normal from meeting this guy. How do you explain that? Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says there's actually many different reasons why there's evil in in our world. And one, one of those reasons is that there is Satan and demons. Satan and demons. Now, one of the reasons why I don't think we like to think about that is because if there's Satan and demons out there, that means the world is a far scarier place than we think it is. If there's Satan and demons, if there's evil spiritual forces, well, the world is actually far scarier than we think it is. And so we've got to ask this question, is there someone who is in control? In control over the, the evil forces out there? Is there someone stronger than that? My boys like Star Wars. And, uh, you, you know, there's the dark side, the light side, and they're in this perpetual battle, right? And, and it seems like the dark side's winning, then the light side, it seems like they're matched. When we think of the good spiritual forces in our world or in our universe and the bad spiritual forces, is it like that? They're kind of evenly matched. Well, today we're going to see they're not evenly matched. In fact, Jesus is reigning and ruling, and that's great news. And we're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see the legion, the crowd, and the man. The legion, the crowd, and the man. And I just want to hip you to something. We are going to have a bit of an excursus. Uh, you know, we're going to think more about evil and Satan and spiritual warfare because I just thought it's an important topic to talk about. But let's have a look at, at the first point, the legion. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 5 with me. It says this, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came to the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Now, did you see what these impure spirits are doing to this man? He he is so tormented that he is screaming out at the top of his lungs. He is living amongst the tombs. And he is so powerful that, you know, no one is strong enough to subdue him. Even the chains, he's breaking them. He's like Samson on steroids here. And did, did you see that he is, he is so far away from, hum- I guess, all the people of the region? And yet, let's have a look what happens when he meets Jesus. Have a look at verse 6 with me. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, 
What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, God's name, don't torture me. What's very interesting is he is so powerful, but he sees Jesus and he falls on his knees. He can see who Jesus is because he gives him this lofty title, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. And he's saying, don't torture me because I think he's saying there's hostility between us. But he's also putting himself under Jesus. Jesus is flat out in control here. Jesus is the powerful one. And and not only can the demons see who Jesus is, they say, you are in control and I'm not. And so Jesus talks with the man. Verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. What we see here is a name. What is your name? Legion. A legion back in this day was about four to 6,000 Roman soldiers. Now, I'm not sure if there's four to 6,000 demons in this guy. It doesn't really matter. But, but there's a lot. And not only that, a legion would move in concert against an enemy. And here I think what, what the demons are saying is they're moving in concert against Jesus. There's two, two sides here. The demons on one side and Jesus on the other. And yet they are begging Jesus once again who is in control. It is Jesus. Now can you see how Jesus was not scared? He is absolutely in control in every single way. And this And he then sends the demons into a herd of pigs. And they go down the bank and they are drowned. Jesus is absolutely and utterly in control. Now, one of the things that we do here at uh, Marsfield Community Church when we preach, we we take application seriously. That's what I mean by that is usually at this point in in this uh, point uh, of the point that I'm preaching in this sermon, um, I would say, well, this is this is how how it you know impacts your life. This is how this passage impacts your life. But what I'm going to do now is just uh, help us to think more about what the Bible says about Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare. Because quite frankly, there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of junk out there. C.S. Lewis said there's two opposite and equal problems we face when thinking about uh, Satan and demons and spiritual warfare. On one hand, we can be obsessed with it. We can talk about it all the time and we can see demons everywhere, right? And on the other hand, we, know we could no longer talk about it or, or not talk about it at all. And I think in our church and, and you know, in our tribe, our theological tribe, we're more likely to not talk about it than to talk about it. And yet the Bible, all the way through the Bible... And we're a church that believes the Bible. All the way through the Bible, Satan and his demons are working. And the Bible says very clearly, even our world, they are working. So I've got four questions to explore. Here's the first question. How does Satan work in our world? How does Satan work in our world? Now, if you have a look at the movies, it seems like what Satan does is, is he possesses people and, you know, their head can turn 360 and they start speaking Latin and all this kind of stuff, right? And demon possession can happen, 
I think the Bible's clear on it. I think I've seen two instances in my life of demon possession. But I'll tell you how Satan works far more in our world. Satan works to try to get you to believe his lies rather than God's truth. If you take one thing away from this sermon and, and, and what Satan does, it's that. Satan is working so that you will believe his lies over God's truth. The first time we see Satan is in the garden in, in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden. And he says, did God say? That's the question. And what has he been saying to everybody? Did God say? Did God, did God really say this with the implication you could do that? Did God really say this? What is he doing? He is trying to get you to believe his lies and not God's truth. That's the main way Satan works in our world. But here's the second question. How is Satan defeated? How is Satan defeated? In, in, the, in the Bible, he's called the accuser. In the book of Job, he, he's seen as the one who accuses Job, right? And so how does he accuse us? He accuses us with our sin. He says to us, you've got all this sin, guilt, and shame. And yet, what has Jesus done for us in the gospel? He has died for us and taken our punishment away so that we no longer are punished for our sin, guilt, and shame. And therefore, Satan has got nothing to accuse us of. If you follow the Lord Jesus, no matter what you have done, Satan can't get up and go, hey, guess what? God doesn't love you because you've done all this. Or God, God is, you are under judgment because you've done this. No, Jesus in dying for you on the cross has taken Satan's ability to do that away. And so, yes, he, he is defeated on the cross, but the Bible also says we are looking forward to the final day where he will be defeated once and for all, where he will be judged and punished for eternity. So, so there is a sense in which we are, we are living in this now and not yet. Yes, Satan is absolutely defeated now, but he has, we're waiting for the final defeat. It's a bit like this. In 1944, there was, I think it was, one and a half million Allied troops landed on the beach of Normandy. And yet, it took another year for, for Hitler to be finally defeated. And yet, when they landed, the war was pretty much over. See, when Jesus died on the cross, the war with Satan is pretty much over. We're waiting for the final defeat. And it is coming... So here's the, the next question. Am I in danger of being attacked by Satan? Am I in danger of being attacked by Satan? I think there's a lot of paranoia out there. I once went to a church where it, it seemed like, you know, I was invited by friends, and it seemed like everyone, even if you're a Christian in, in, in the um, congregation, you probably had a demon. And there was all, the, all this talk of demons. There was the demon of lust and the demon of drinking. There was the de oh, one, one of them I, I thought was funny. One, one was the, the demon of listening to Guns N' Roses. And I was like, got a demon then. You know, you know it's just kind of all, all this weird stuff, right? And yet the Bible is very clear that if you are a Christian, you cannot be possessed by a demon. 
The Bible is very clear. If you read the Gospels, and, and, and please do, check this out, have a look at all the people who were possessed by demons. None of them actually had faith in Jesus. In fact, this man goes from having no faith in Jesus to having faith in Jesus after all the demons leave him. And the Bible is very clear that if you are a Christian, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, you know, Satan can't dwell in you if God's Holy Spirit is there. And the Bible is also very clear that if you are a Christian, you are under the control of Jesus, not Satan. You are under God's control. So, so please, if please do not listen to preachers or read books or anything that, that, that say, if you're a Christian, you could have a demon. You don't. Now, now here's the thing. Is there spiritual warfare? Absolutely. Satan may not have total power, but he still has some power in our world. And what is spiritual warfare? Well, as, it's, as I've said before, what is Satan trying to do for you, whether you're a Christian or not? He is trying to get you to believe his lies rather than God's truth. That is, in the end, that's what spiritual warfare is. Satan trying to get you to believe and churches to believe his lies rather than God's truth. And it happens so, so, so much. The, the, the thing is with Satan, when he's trying to lie to you, he's not just going to put a big stupid lie in front of you. He's not going to go to you and go, oh, here's like half, half a ton of cocaine and if you sell it, you could be a billionaire. He's not, he's not stupid like that. What he's going to do is work with, your, with you and your weaknesses and he's going to use those so that you would believe his lies over God's truth. Uh, That's happened with me, right? I I can remember being uh, at my previous church and being discouraged in ministry and starting to think that God may not be good. And that affects my whole life, right? And what what is Satan doing at that point? He's trying to make me believe his lies as I'm discouraged rather than God's truth. I was, I was talking with, with, with uh, so many people in the last few weeks that have been saying, I'm not sure that, that I'm loved by God. I know it intellectually. I can tell you the Bible verses, but deep in my heart, I don't feel it. And when we talk about it, it's like, you know, I can see all the, all the pain in my life or I can see all the sin in my life or I can see these aspects of my life and I see all that stuff and then, then I, just, I just feel like God doesn't love me. Well, I told them they're under spiritual warfare and Satan wants them to believe that God doesn't love them. But of course he does. Satan also attacks churches by going after their leaders in very big ways but subtle ways. He'll say to our leadership team, Did God, does God's word really say that? I don't think you should be really strong on that when God's word says, actually, you should be strong on that. What what is Satan trying to do? He's trying to make us believe his lies rather than God's truth. And finally, how can you resist Satan's work? 
If Satan is trying to get you to believe his lies rather than God's truth, what you need to do is you need to remind yourself of the gospel. One of my theological heroes who spoke about you know, spiritual warfare more, more than a lot of people or more than most people in church history is a guy named Martin Luther. And he, he talked about how he was attacked by Satan, this great reformer, this great, this great hero of church, church history. He was attacked often by Satan. And Satan would get in his ear and say, did, did God really love, does God really love you? He would get, Satan would get in his ear and say, hey, hey, you've done all these things wrong. Oh, God, God, you can't be right with God. And here's what he says. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. But what of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Some of you guys, Satan is whispering in your ear and saying, how, God, how could God love you when you're like this? And you remind him, you go, yes, I am like that, but God loves me. Because he has shown that he loves me by dying for me on the cross. When Satan reminds you of your sin, there's a sense in which he's doing you a favor because as a Christian, you go from your sin to being reminded of what Jesus has done. As the old hymn says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him, see Jesus there who made an end to all my sin. How do you, how do you fight against Satan? How do you resist Satan? You remind yourself of the gospel. But secondly, you actually do the things on a regular basis which reminds yourself of God's word. You read the Bible for yourself. You go to your growth group. You go to prayer meetings. You, you come to church. Church is so important. Church is so important. As we come together, we're getting our hearts back in line with God's truth and God's word. Think about what we did this morning for a second, right? We had two Bible readings, a great opportunity to be reminded of what God has done and who he is. We sung praises to God which remind us of, of what, who he is, but also it gets our hearts back in line. Now, we, we prayed, which reminds us that we are not in control, but he is. And he's a good and loving Heavenly Father who listens to his children's prayers. And, and after church, what we're going to do is we're going to have fellowship. And what we're going to do is we're not just going to talk about how terrible the weather has been, even though it has been, right? We're going to remind each other of what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to encourage each other. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you realize it's so important for us to be at church? And one of the things that, this is going to be controversial, but if, if, it's, but if, if you want to talk with me about this after, I'm, I'm fine with this, right? One of, the, one of the terrible things I think has happened in the last few years with COVID is we've been having online church. On one level, it's a good thing. It's good that, that, you know, for people who aren't here, we've been able to get the Word of God into their, into their TVs and, you know, into their lounge rooms and that kind of thing. But can I say, online church is a really pathetic substitute for the real thing. 
See, when you're an online church, you don't get to talk with people after church. When you're, when you're doing online church, you don't get to sing together, really. Like, anyone, was anyone singing at home? Well, some of you guys were, but I know a lot of you guys are going, oh, I'm glad Kate can sing because I can't. And I'm glad Kate can sing because if you heard me sing, you wouldn't believe in Jesus, right? But, but here's the thing, right? You miss so much about being when you're at home with online church. So much better to be here. And so I know there's fears around COVID. I, I, I know that. But, but, but if you are fully vaxxed, guess what? You're going to be safe here. We're taking all the precautions to make sure that you're safe here. And so I would encourage you to come. Now, there's so many more questions that we could ask uh, about, um, about Satan and his work. Maybe you want to ask me after, uh, but we, sh- we should move on. Let's have a look at our next point. And don't worry, the final two points are nowhere near as long as the first one. I know some of you, are, uh, most of you are very relieved at that point. Okay, let's have a look at the crowd. As we saw in verses 1 to 5, we see the crowd, how are they treating the man who's demon-possessed? They're chaining him up. They're casting him out into the tombs. They want to have nothing to do with him. Literally, in the original, they try to tame him. The thing is, wild animals are tamed. People aren't. They're treating him like this ferocious wild animal. They're not treating him as a part of God's good creation. And then in verses 13 and 14, let's have a look at what happens to the demons. Have a look at verse 13 with me. It says this, He, that is Jesus, gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out, or came out went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town, the countryside, and the people excuse me, went out to see what happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man. They told them about their pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. You see there the, the, the spiritual makeup of, of what they really are. Now, don't get me wrong, losing your livelihood in one, one uh, instant instance of maybe bacon aside or something like that that's really tough right don't get me wrong but but it's interesting that they are more concerned over their pigs being drowned rather than a member of the human race being in such agony they are more concerned over the pigs being drowned than a member of the human race being in agony. Now, now, now think about it. We live in a world where, where we're seeing like Babe and Porky Pig and all, you know Miss Piggy and all this kind of stuff. So you know, pigs are this cute little animal when they're really not. But anyway, that's a whole different story. And we, we think sympathetically of them. But think about this. In God's world, one human being is worth far more than 2,000 pigs. And yet, it's not for them. And you see their spiritual makeup because the way 
the way you treat the creation shows what you think of the Creator. You can see that they are, they are not attuned to God and what He wants for them because of the way they are treating their creation. I've got two boys, Elijah who's four and Niels who's seven, and they're ladies' men. They seriously are, but they don't go for girls their age. It's 18 above. They're just always in love with girls that are so much older than them. And it's very cute to see that. And they go from one girl to another to another and break hearts. It's, it's, it's hard as a pastor to pastor all these girls who have had their hearts broken. That, that actually doesn't happen. But, but one of the things is very interesting. Um, just uh, a couple of months ago, we were up at uh, SEMA Summer School up at Katoomba. And uh, we were talking with some friends there and, and uh, two friends, Millie and Jordan, and they're a married couple. And my son, Elijah, fell in love with Millie. And so Elijah wanted me to pass on a message to Millie, um, which I didn't see again, so I had to tell Jordan. I said, hey, Jordan, Elijah wants you to tell Millie that if, Jordan, you die, Elijah will marry her. And he's like, okay, thank you. Talking about cutting another dude's grass, right, you know? And, uh, but, what, but what my boys do, if they, if they fall in love with a girl, they will make her a ton of craft. Like just heaps and heaps of craft. And what, what's really beautiful to see is that these girls will look at this craft and go, wow, I haven't got this. You know, like they can't even make out what it is most of the time. But, wow, what's this? What is it? Oh, it's a dude getting eaten by a shark. Thank you so much. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll do that. And I, and I know that these girls actually love my, my, my boys. Why? Because they're treating what they created with love and therefore they love the Creator. You can see that these people did not love God, the Creator, by how they treated the creation, this man. But not only that, they are afraid of Jesus. They are afraid of Jesus. See, one of the things we've got to ask us as a church is this. What kind of church do we want to be? We talk about wanting to see a flood of people become Christians, but can I tell you, that's actually going to mess us up as a nice middle-class church. That means we are going to have to deal with people who have got their lives in a big mess. And yet, if we're going to say we truly love God, we're going to have to treat his creation, these beautiful people who come into our church, seeking Jesus and seeking our help, we're going to treat them with love. We can't be like the people in the crowd who treated this man with contempt and beat him and chained him up and sent him out to the tombs. No, we welcome them in. And you're probably going, well, Hans, but there's going to be some people that are unlovable who come. Yes, can I just say... But you and I were unlovable too. Jesus loved and died for you, not when you were all perfect, because you're not and I'm not. Jesus loved you and died for you when you were unlovable. And so even if there are unlovable people or unlovable people, in in inverted commas, we love them because we were first loved when we were unlovable. Jesus came to us when we were away from him. We love because he first loved us, unlike the crowd. And let's have a look, finally, have a look at the man. Did you see where he's at? Verse 1, he's in the region of the Gerasenes, a Gentile area, right in the north of Israel. See, Jesus going into Gentile territory shows that there's not one inch of the world that is too far 
for God's mercy and grace to come. The man's predicament, as we saw in verses 1 to 5, is terrible. He's got no possessions. He's residence. He's living in tombs. He's isolated. He's cutting himself. He's crying out. Demons, death, he's amongst pigs. He is, to a Jewish man, he's totally unclean. And yet Jesus, who is a Jewish man, goes to him. Jesus has compassion on him. And it will be a mistake this morning for us to look at him and go, well, I'm glad that's not me. Because here's the thing. You may not be demon-possessed, but have a look in your heart for a second. Haven't you got all these things that are, all these feelings, desires that are at war with how Jesus wants you to live? C.S. Lewis, when he became a Christian, had a look into his life and he says this, for the first time I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled to me, appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds. My name was Legion. Well, you may not, if you're a Christian, you are not possessed by uh, a demon, let alone Legion of them. But until Jesus comes back in your heart, in, in my heart, are a legion of feelings and desires that are at war with Jesus. And yet Jesus, just as he had compassion on this man, he has had compassion on you and me. Just as Jesus died on the cross for this man to set him free, he died for you and for me to set us free. And so how are we going to respond? Well, I wonder if you saw the two responses here. In verse 15. Verse 15 and 16 and 17 talk about the townspeople seeing Jesus and they want nothing to do with him. They want him to go. And then we see on the other side, you see this man who's been touched by the love and the forgiveness of Jesus wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, your job now is to tell everyone what God has done for you. What's your response to the compassion of Jesus, to the love and the forgiveness of Jesus? Are you going to ask him to leave or are you going to say, I'm going to follow you? Well, if you're going to follow him, guess what? He's your, he's your job. That's every day, tell everybody what he has done for you. His grace, his mercy, his love, his forgiveness. That's our job. That's our job as a church. That's our job as individuals. I started off this, this sermon by talking about evil in our world. The beautiful thing about the Lord Jesus is, as I've said, he has defeated evil on the cross and Satan and his demons. But one day we are looking forward to that final victory where Jesus comes back and he will say no more. Jesus is reigning and he is ruling. He is in control. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who we look to. He is the one who, because we're on his side, we do not fear. But we have faith. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this passage, this this confronting passage. Lord, Lord, I thank you that that you you have so worked our, our world that you have 
already defeated Satan by sending Jesus to die for us on the cross. Lord, for those of us who are, who are right now doubting God's love for, for us, Lord, help them to be reminded that, that of your great love for them. Help them to believe your truth and not Satan's lies. For, the, for those of us here who, who are trying to figure out where they're at with you, I pray that today we, they have seen the might and the mercy and the power of Jesus. And they would come to him. Lord, help us not to be a church that on one hand um, goes too much and talks too much about Satan and demons, but on the other hand, help us not to be so, uh, I guess, um, led by our world to never consider him. But Lord, help us always to, to do and believe and think about what the Bible says and to trust in Jesus as our Lord, the one who has defeated Satan on the cross and we'll defeat him totally when he comes back. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.